Uh, Romans 14. We're kind of camping out here for a family month. I'm going to read verses 17 through 19 to us. Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, and that's refers to religious rituals, kosher foods, meat that's been sacrificed in the debates that go all around that. It's not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Karen and I were at the Detroit Institute of Arts not long ago with our son Brian, and dropping him off at the airport and his brother and sister-in-law, but there was like a six-hour gap. So what are we going to do? We went over to the art museum, and we spent the afternoon walking from gallery to gallery, from ancient Egyptian to ancient Greece, and then uh, to the Renaissance galleries, French and Dutch and Italian, and then to the Impressionists, and then last of all, I went to the American galleries because... I just haven't found those as satisfying. Um, but I saw a piece by an American landscaped artist named William Trost Richards that I really liked. It was painted sometime in the 1860s, titled Forest Scene. It pictures a river running between, two, uh, between hills. You can't really see the tops of the hills, but the river with towering trees on either side. And it's, I think, intentionally a, a kind of nature's cathedral that you're looking at. I can tell you about the way the light plays on the left side of the rocks and the trees as though it were either mid-morning or mid-afternoon. Uh, and the flat stones, I can tell you about them, that line the bottom of the stream and are visible. Um, and the stream, how it tumbles into the foreground and the almost photographic quality of the bark on the hemlocks and about the swamp oak that leans into the sun and out over the river. I tell you a good deal about that painting. But you know what? I can't tell you how it was framed. Was the frame made out of metal or wood? I don't remember. Was it light or was it dark? I don't know. And if I were standing in the gallery right now and talking to you on my cell phone, that's funny, isn't it? Yeah. And you asked me to describe what I was looking at. I'm almost certain that I wouldn't say anything about the frame. Because I didn't mention it, would you conclude that the canvas didn't have a frame, that it was just tacked to the wall, or that it was unrolled and lying on the floor? Probably not. You'd expect me to, to talk about the picture, not about the frame. You take the frame for granted. Sometimes the reason people don't talk about a thing is not because they don't know about it, but because everyone knows about it. Because Everyone takes it for granted. Because Paul did not very often use the words kingdom of God eight times in all of his letters, some people have concluded that he didn't think that was very important. Jesus talked a lot about it, but that was then, and this is now, Paul doesn't talk about it. The Jesuit scholar Joseph Fitzmaier writes that the kingdom of God never becomes a vital topic in Paul's preaching. If by that he means Paul considered the kingdom of God unimportant, I think he has completely misunderstood the situation. The kingdom of God is the frame. It's the frame that Paul uses. Everything he says in his letters fits into that frame. 
we know from Luke's account in the book of Acts that Paul did speak about the kingdom of God a lot. Luke closes his history of the early church with Paul spending two years in Rome. And guess what he's doing? He's doing the same thing he's been doing for years. He's preaching the kingdom of God. Paul and his fellow apostles and fellow evangelists made it clear to people that they were standing on the border of the kingdom of God and the only way in was through faith in Jesus Christ, through confessing Jesus as Lord. That's the frame that Father Fitzmaier failed to notice. Paul assumes his letters are being read by kingdom of God citizens who are trying to live together under the authority of Jesus as Lord. You can see that in this passage. Paul can throw out this phrase about the kingdom of God without explanation because he knows his readers already get it. He takes it for granted that they know that they're citizens of God's kingdom, which is the most important thing on earth. God's kingdom, Paul says, is not eating and drinking. Now remember, that's about ritual things, about religious rituals and about rules. It's not about that. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to suggest that this reminder is as important in the Christian home, in our homes, as it is in the Christian church, in our church. We who have faith in Jesus are kingdom of God people in our homes, as well as in our church. The life that God wants for us, both in the church and in the home, is a kingdom of God life. And that life is not now and never has been about keeping religious rules and rituals. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy. Now, what do those things look like? What does a kingdom home look like? Specifically, what does righteousness in our homes look like? Well, what is righteousness if it's not keeping religious rituals and rules? Is a righteous home one where children are seen but not heard? Where the family is at church every time the doors are open? And where strict attention is paid to spiritual practices? I think those things could be true of a religious home, though I'm not too sure about the children being seen and not heard. But they could also be true of a very unrighteous home. Righteousness is not about a set of behaviors. Remember what Jesus said about righteousness? Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and of the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom, there's the kingdom again, of heaven. If anyone ever had a set of rules and behaviors down, it was the Pharisees about whom Jesus was talking and the teachers of the law. They had a rule for everything. They had hundreds and hundreds of rules just to tell them how to spend the Sabbath day. Regarding the commandment to keep Sabbath, they had them memorized. For example, they did not permit carrying a burden on the Sabbath. Right? Old Testament says that. Don't carry a burden on the Sabbath. So they made up a whole bunch of rules about that. What is a burden? They said a burden was food equal to the weight of a dried fig. A burden was enough wine for mixing in a goblet, milk enough for one swallow, honey enough to put upon a wound, water enough to moisten an eye salve, 
paper enough to write a customs notice upon, ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet. More than that was a burden. A read enough to, to make a pen, and the list goes on and on and on and on. And they memorized all these things. They argued endlessly about whether a man could carry a lamp from one room to the other on a Sabbath. Whether a tailor committed a sin if he went out into public and forgot to take the needle out of his robe. Whether a woman could wear a brooch or a wig on the Sabbath. And even if a man had to take out his artificial teeth on the Sabbath day. To realize people had dentures back in Jesus' time. They did. And if you wore them on Sabbath, somebody might be yelling at you. If there were ever rule keepers, it was those guys. Yet Jesus said that their righteousness didn't cut it. You know what people thought when they heard that? Oh, man. If their righteousness doesn't cut it, the rest of us don't stand a chance. But that's because they thought about righteousness as keeping a bunch of rules. It's not. It never was. So if righteousness is not keeping a bunch of rules, what is it? This thing that characterizes the kingdom of God and ought to characterize our homes. And why is it something I should want? And how do I get it? I want to spend the rest of our time thinking through the answers to those three questions. What is righteousness? Why should we want it? How do we get it? Righteousness is a characteristic of God that can also characterize us. Now, that's not true of all God's characteristics. For example, God is omniscient and he's omnipresent. We will never know everything and be everywhere at once. But we can be righteous. Righteousness is not a personal attribute like omniscience or omnipresence. It is a relational quality. That distinction is important. Righteousness is all about relationships. Even God, who is the epitome of perfection, could not be righteous if he were alone in the universe. Because righteousness requires relationship. Apart from relationship, there's no righteousness. Of course, God can never be all alone in the universe since he eternally relates to himself and to everything else as three persons. But to be righteous is to be right, be just, be faithful, be merciful in relation to others. God is right in his relationship to others and all of his creation He's righteous, that is, he's faithful and just and merciful to everyone and everything he's made. By the way, that's Psalm 147, worth a read. And he wants us to be right in our relationships, too. When we're right in the way we relate to others, the word we use to, to speak of that is to say that we're justified. When I'm right in relating to you, maybe I rebuke you, but if I'm right in that, I'm justified to do that, right? Right? When we're right in relationship to God, we are justified with God. When our relationship with God is wrong because of sin, selfishness, lack of interest, unfaithfulness, then we are not justified. So, I want you to hear what I'm saying. 
You can keep every rule in the book. You can know the Bible from cover to cover. You can fast and pray and give money to the needy and not be righteous. Your family can go to church three times a week. You can pray before every meal. And you can sponsor an orphan in Mali through World Vision and still not be righteous. Righteousness is not about checking off boxes on a list of nice guy or religious guy behaviors. It's always about relationship. Relationships that are just and bright and appropriate and merciful. And that brings us to the second question. Why should I want that? Why should I care about righteousness? You know, too often the answer given to that question is, so that you can go to heaven. What? You want to burn in hell forever? Of course you want to be righteous. But that is a very incomplete and misleading answer. Just think about the question, why should I want to be righteous? Or let's put it another way, why should I want to be right in relationship with God and others? As soon as you ask it that way, the answer is obvious. Life is all about relationships. And the good life is all about good relationships. Wrong relationships just drain the life out of us and rob us of peace and joy. Our biggest problems all involve relationships. To ask, why should I want to be righteous? Why should I want to be right in relationships? is like asking, why should I want to be healthy? Or why should I want to be wise? The answer is self-evident. Of course I want to be right in relationships. Your well-being does not depend on things. It depends on relationships. Many people let what could be rich and satisfying relationships with spouses and children turn ugly and die while they're off in the pursuit of money and things. They sacrifice relationships, including a relationship with God, for possessions thinking that's what they need to be happy. But really, if you're trying to be unhappy, if you want to die miserable, that's the way to do it. And apparently a lot of people want to die miserable because a lot of people are doing it. Not very long ago, incoming college students were surveyed on their values. Can you guess what their top life objective was? For more than 8 out of 10, the highest priority was becoming very well off financially. That was their highest priority of more than 8 out of 10 students. But that won't make them happy. Researchers have found that Increased wealth is only slightly correlated with an increased sense of well-being. In fact, at lower levels of income, the, the increase is much greater. But as, the, uh, as wealth increases, right now at $75,000, that seems to be where that correlation starts to tail off and become unimportant. So what if you substitute something else like success in place of money? I don't care about money, but I want to succeed. That's my life objective. Will you be happier? Doesn't seem like it. The Harvard psychologist Dan Gilbert says that all kinds of studies have led researchers to the same conclusion, and it surprised them. Both success, I got what I wanted, and failure, I missed what I wanted. In his words, and I quote, far, have far less impact, less intensity, and much less duration than people expect. In other words, when you get what you really want, 
that sense of happiness and well-being doesn't last as long as you thought it would. And when you fail to get what you really want, the unhappiness doesn't last as long as you thought it would. See, the answer to the question, why am I not happier, has more to do with relationships than with money or success. The more important the relationship, the more impact righteousness will have. So, for example, if your relationship with your spouse is unrighteous, it's not appropriate, not faithful, not truthful, not compassionate, not just, the effect on your soul will be devastating. Your relationship to your child or parent, when it's wrong, it will profoundly affect you. Now, your relationship to your male delivery person, unless he or she is your spouse or your mom or dad, will probably not have the same impact. Though an unrighteous relationship with your mailman will also negatively impact your soul. Every unrighteous relationship affects all the other relationships that intertwine with it. And in the same way, every righteous relationship affects all the other relationships that intertwine with it. And guess what? God intends for you, your relationships with everybody else to intertwine with him. All of your relationships. That's why Bonhoeffer said that we always relate to each other through Christ, even in our most intimate relationships. The most important intimate relationship you can have is not with your spouse or your child, but with your Creator and Lord. When that relationship is right, that is, when you are righteous, when you are in a right, appropriate, faithful, truthful, just relationship with God, your soul is enlivened and the rest of your relationships are changed for good, right? That relationship and your other relationships begin to come right. So why be righteous? You might as well ask, why be healthy? Why be happy? Your satisfaction with God, with yourself, and the people around you depends on being righteous. Robert Waldinger is the director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development. That study was started over 75 years ago. It's been tracking the lives of 724 men for all those years. He stated the clearest message we get from this 75-year study is this. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier. Period. Needed a guy from Harvard to tell us that, right? And the place to start with good relationships is with God, right? That relationship and all your other relationships with your spouse, your kids, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbor, your mailman will begin to come right. But here's the bad news. You can't write that relationship. You can keep all the rules, but righteousness isn't about rules. You can go to church three times a week, support orphans in Mali, and know the Bible from cover to cover, but you can't make that relationship right. You are spiritually and relationally impaired and incapable of making your relationship with God right. Think about it this way. Imagine there is a new technology that could dramatically increase the IQ of mentally impaired individuals. Sort of like the, the story Flowers for Algernon. Did you read that story? 
Okay, if you're my age, everybody my age read that story back when they were in high school. So there's this technology that can increase a person's IQ. But a mentally impaired person, someone with, say, an IQ of 65, would never be able to make the technology work. The person who needs it most wouldn't be able to use it. In fact, he wouldn't be able to use it because he needed it. That is analogous to our situation. We are spiritually impaired. We need to change spiritually because we're impaired. But because we're impaired, we can't change spiritually. It's a catch-22 situation. The reason we need to change is the reason we can't change. That catch-22 situation is what the Book of Romans is all about. We have been relationally and spiritually impaired by the terrible fall into sin. Paul talks about that in chapter 5. Our injuries must be healed, but because we're so injured, we can't do what is necessary for healing to take place. All right, let me pause right there for a moment. Just to review, what is righteousness? Righteousness being right in relation to others, most importantly to God. Why should we want to be righteousness? Righteous because our blessedness, happiness, wholeness is all about relationships. The good life is not a life in which you possess a lot of things, but a life of good relationships, the most important of which is with God. And that brings us to the third of those questions. How can I become righteous? And that's where we run into a problem. Becoming righteous lies outside of our ability. We're like a guy who needs to get into the house to get his keys, but can't get into his house because his keys are in the house. That guy's out of luck. Unless someone like a locksmith comes to his aid and does for him what he can't do for himself. The theme of the Bible, and especially this letter of Romans, is that someone has come to our aid to do for us what we cannot do ourselves. He writes our relationship with God. The biblical term is, he justifies us. And that begins to set all up our other relationships right. That begins to change everything in our lives. That someone is Jesus, sent by God to bring us into a right relationship with him, to make us righteous, to justify us, and in so doing, change our lives now and our destinies forever. The cost to himself of writing our relationship with God was his own life. Now, that's not because God is so mean, but because we are so profoundly impaired. Another way of putting it, the way the Bible frequently puts it, is he died for our sins. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And now he invites us to join him, to follow him, to become his people. When we trust him, God accepts us. Our relationship with God is righted. But we must trust him. We've been justified. That is, we've been righted in our relationship with God. That's Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Through faith. Faith is not a religious thing to do. But a way to live in relationship. A relationship to Jesus that's right and appropriate and good. In which... He is Lord, and we're his servant, his citizens, his followers, even his little brothers and sisters. Faith 
in Jesus is not a thing you do, but a relationship you live. You don't mark it on the dotted line, right? You live it with him. Live that way with Jesus, and your relationship to God will be righted, and that will be the start of writing your relationships to everyone and everything else that is a being righteous. Faith in Jesus. And righteousness is, verse 17, what the kingdom is all about. Faith in Jesus will transform all your relationships, including your relationship to your spouse, to your kids, to your parents, your siblings. Righteousness in the home is the foundation of peace and joy. And it comes from trusting Jesus. And it doesn't come from any other way. And it's only possible because he came and died and rose again for us. Now, how do we apply that to our lives? Well, if you haven't done so already, begin a relationship with God by trusting your life and your future to Jesus. If you haven't done this, you're the guy who needs his keys to get into his house to get his keys. And Jesus is the locksmith. He can write your relationship with God. If you haven't trusted Jesus as Lord with the intention of living for him, I urge you to do it now. Trust him. Choose to live for him and tell him of your choice. That's what we call prayer, right? Once you've done that, it's important to bring your other relationships to him and ask him to straighten them out as well. God wants your relationship with him to order all your other relationships. The idea that you can, can be unjust in your relationships and still be okay with God is a false idea. There's nothing biblical about that at all. God wants all your relationships, this is Pauline language, to be in Christ. He wants you to relate to everyone through him. So here's what I'd suggest you do. Ask him what he wants you to do in your relationships. Starting with your most intimate ones. With spouse, child, parent, sibling. And be ready to get an answer. Maybe you need to apologize. Maybe you need to listen. Maybe you need to confront to tell the truth. Maybe you need to forgive. Maybe you need to stop making it harder for your kids by putting stumbling blocks in their way. Bring your relationship to Jesus. Ask him what he wants you to do in it and do it, even if it's hard. He'll help you with that. See, you have to remember the good life is all about good relationships. There's no price too high to pay for that. Jesus paid for it with his life. All right, let's pray. Our God, we, we admit that we were not only in wrong relationship with you, but there's nothing we could do about it at all.
And we rejoice that you did something about it. You sent your only begotten Son, who died for our sins, that we might be justified. We might be right in our relation with you. Lord, would you carry that out to our relationships with each other, with our family members, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and even with the, the guy or gal that delivers our mail. Would you cause our relationship with you to make right our relationships with each other. I ask you to do this in the name and for the sake of the one who died to make it possible, Jesus, our Lord.